The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone. So great to be able to gather like this and really great that we're going to figure out how, once again, how to create community. So we're gathering around these teachings that even though they came about some 2,500 years ago, I personally, and I think a lot of us, find them just really pragmatic and useful, even though they arose in a different culture, obviously a long, long time ago. They seem to still illuminate the actual quality of or experience of this mind in ways that support a deepening of wisdom and compassion. And I'm personally really grateful for that, and I'm also grateful that I get to do it with other people. And that's what we're doing, trying to make them real, really uh, applicable, useful in our own lives, and to learn from each other. So there are some um, aspects of the Buddhist studies that I always like on the first night, just to review. So this is a program for people who have a regular practice. doesn't mean you're going to sit every day, but... You should be aspiring to want to sit every day, even if it's you know busy day, just a few minutes. That it's really um, we're sensing this desire for this to get to the top, this practice to get to the top of the priority list. Like even those of you who are raising kids, yeah, you gotta make dinner, you gotta take care of the kids, but actually the intention to be present can even trump that because it will help. (laughs) It's probably not that possible to be a good lover, a good parent, a good citizen, a good whatever, if we're just operating on autopilot. And this is especially true with this summer course on sila, which is the Pali word for this moral sensitivity, moral integrity, the natural joy and lightness and freedom from remorse that can arise, the more we trust that heart, this heart, that is actually, naturally, when we're noticing, sensitive. Like We might think it's a problem, like we do something that was a little off, like I noticed, I said something to my partner earlier today. Um, thankfully, she pointed it out, but I noticed it then. Hopefully, I would have noticed it at least a little, even if they hadn't po- pointed it out. But just like, oh, that, that wasn't very nice. That wasn't very wise. And it hurt a little, as it should. And so we want to be grateful because there's some continuity, momentum, whatever, of awareness, present moment awareness, then we get to take advantage of moral sensitivity. And if there's not any present moment awareness, it doesn't matter if your heart's sensitive because nobody's paying attention. (laughs) There's no learning from that sensitivity. We're just... The heart, in a way, is saying, hey, the way you're relating right now, it hurts. 
It's a cause for stress here, probably a cause for stress out there. But if that awareness, that's what awareness is, it's aware of what's being felt. And we humans, maybe other animals to a lesser degree, who knows, um, but we humans for sure have this capacity to be aware of that moral sensitivity. And so we're, you know, we're practicing together, we're practicing at home alone, or maybe we practice with other people there too, but we're studying, we're gathering on Monday nights, or if you're busy with work or family stuff, you can always watch the program later because it will be there on our YouTube channel. Um, immediately, pretty much immediately after Monday night, you can watch it. And, this is important, every other Monday, the second week, the fourth week, the sixth week, and the eighth week of this class, the last 20 minutes or so will break up into small groups, and you'll meet in groups of three or four, and you'll check in about what you're learning. And of course, it's always okay to pass in those small groups, but what's not okay is to be part of this and then to sneak away when it's time for the small groups. So if you're going to do the Buddhist studies, that means you're going to show up in these small groups. And, and we're all responsible for creating a little or a big sacred space for that group of three or four folks to sit together on Zoom or here in the room in the building and to give each person a couple minutes to speak directly from their own experience, which might be a lot of confusion or a lot of shame or a lot of clarity, a lot of learning or whatever it is. Just one big hairy question, right, that the person might put out. That'd be fine. And the other people in the group at that time, they're taking full responsibility to listen to really be in the experience of the moment, in the experience of their body. Because when we're intimate with our body, we're also going to be intimate with hearing and intimate with the comprehension of whatever the person is saying as best we can. Intimate with just that energetic empathy, like feeling what we're feeling, listening to that person, meeting them as best we can. That's a real gift. So we hear from each person, and then for the five or seven minutes that are left, usually, just an open conversation with the three or four folks until the time's up. So second, third, uh, second, fourth, sixth, and eighth week, we use the last 20 minutes for those small groups. And so just be aware of that, and be aware like, oh, I really feel dead to the world. I don't want to go. Well, that's okay to not want to go. Just Go, knowing that that's how you feel. And you can even say that when it's your turn to share. I really don't want to be there. It's all about learning how to be real. Because what we're doing in the bigger groups, but especially in the smaller groups, is we're we're, uh, normalizing what it's like to be a human being with a conditioned mind. Like conditioned not to want to be in a small group. Because that's how you were conditioned. Or whatever you're responses in that situation. And just to 
kind of model being present even as we're speaking and sharing with everything that's moving in our heart. And you can even speak to that when you're sharing in that kind of real-time way. So that's an important part of the Buddhist studies, as is the study component. So in the email that I'll send out uh, tomorrow, we're updating the Google group with all the people who registered for this. A lot of you have already been registered and are, are already in that Buddhist studies email group. But it's how we communicate with each other. You can always opt out, unsubscribe. And, uh, but I'll have resources that you can listen to or read to help deepen your understanding of the Buddhist teachings on this topic of moral sensitivity, moral integrity. So do at least a little, and for those of you with more time, do a lot. And the purpose of study isn't to, like how much you read. It might be you read a paragraph, and then you put the article or the book down, and you look directly at your experience right then and there. And then you might read a little bit more. So it's, it's really using the information you get from study to illuminate our experience. And mostly what we'll be illuminating is this world of morality, which I know is a word that, unfortunately, we've been conditioned to sort of always think that there's this uber-parent wagging their finger, telling us that's not what you're supposed to do. But uh, the way the... um, Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings are, you know, the whole area, this whole part of spiritual life, you could say a third of spiritual life is appreciating, developing and appreciating this moral sensitivity. And it's about curiosity, right? The, the whole point of us talking, like we're going to talk about the subject this summer, is to activate more and more curiosity because it's sort of like the, the three thirds of spiritual life. They're just our existence at different frequency, you know, relatively gross level of our human existence, sort of middling degree of subtlety, not too subtle, not too gross, and the more subtle. So sila, which has a lot to do with how we relate in this outer way. But that includes how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to each other and how we relate to things, right? So that's a relatively gross part of what it is to be a human being. And how we relate to our mind, the sort of more gross level of the mind, the activity of our mind. You could even say the thinking mind. That's a third of the practice. Third we call samadhi, just so for those of you who know that word. And then there's even the more subtle, which we call panya, wisdom, or view, or understanding. So there's that third. So sila is the grossest part, but that doesn't mean it's the easy part. Or even, I don't think it's quite right to say the foundational part, which you you do hear sometimes in Buddhism. There's a story from Ajahn Chah, who's a great Thai meditation master, that I guess some Westerner 
asked him, like, you know, you seem to be teaching a lot about meditation and wisdom, this more subtle third of the practice of the path, to the Westerners, how come you don't talk about sila, moral conduct? And uh, Ajahn Chah, this wise teacher, said, well, clearly no one's going to make any progress if they ignore this third of the practice or the path, but I'd rather them figure that out for themselves. You know, maybe he had some sense, you know, the people, especially whenever it was in the mid-60s and Westerners started to show up uh, at the monastery where he was teaching in Northeast Thailand, maybe he just had a sense that if he, he began with, you know, teachings on non-harming and observing your speech and how you consume and things like that, it would just activate this sort of part of, you know, especially people who got themselves to Asia, you know, maybe they were the more rebellious types who didn't want another parent telling them what to do, right? They wanted some wise guy telling them that, you know, hey, you could be free. And that got their interest, and that was sort of the end. But then, as practice develops, we start hitting, bumping up against a wall, because we haven't gotten interested in this third of our human existence, which is, we're in relationship together. There's no, even if you live in a cave all alone, you're still in relationship with your, the conditioning of your own mind and your, the experience of your own body and the walls of the cave and the spiders and the bats and whatever else. You're in relationship with all of that stuff. There's no place where we can be where we're not in a relational world. It can't be ignored. And trying to ignore it means planting seeds for stress and suffering. And we generally learn the hard way because it's messier stuff. This this area, sila, the relational aspect of the path. But in a way, it's a place where we can build a lot of confidence that I mentioned briefly in the guided sit, that we are not helpless. Like this whole, um, it almost seems like we shouldn't say it, but maybe it's a nice thing. Maybe this, I'll add this to the homework. I'll try to remember. Maybe I'll even write it down so I don't forget tomorrow when I put it in the email. Um, Resolve with confidence to be happy. Like not to be ashamed to want to be happy. I want to be happy. Like just forget about emptiness from this very personal point of view. I really want to be a happy human being. I don't want to hurt and I really don't want to make other people hurt. There seems to be enough pain, you know, emotional, physical, mental pain. And I, because it, it seems like a, Oh, do I have permission? Does it make sense to want to be a happy human being? Is there some sort of, does that violate some sort of law? Like we can't ask for what we want. And, and maybe it would be good with that ask, 
life, like I really want to be happy, to add, and this may take some practice, and to be truthful, this is the second part, to be truthful, I'm not even sure what that would look like. I'm pretty sure I'll know when I get there, but I have some humility about that I might not be able to imagine even what that's like. But I'm interested. And generally, you know, as we are a sincere, interested human being, interested in this happiness project, we do develop some intuition about the flavor and nature of that happiness. You know, the Buddha, you know, we have words, but the words are only so-so. They're not really going to help too much. Like one word is an unconditional happiness. The happiness of the cessation of craving. No craving. No dependence. The heart that is free to give because it's not dependent on getting. So that heart is free to be generous, generously present, generously responsive. So we aspire to be happy and that really, you can't, we can't in a powerful way aspire to be happy unless we have this beginning insight and intuition that Uh, happiness is available and it depends on understanding the conditional nature, like the lawful nature. And it really gets distilled. You know, we get this teaching from the Buddha, but we can, this is not, we, I'm guessing, have all begun this insight that how my mind is relating, the quality of the intention or motivation really matters. And in and the Buddhist teachings, he's very clear that like how it is for me right now, the pain in my body, the conditions, the circumstances around me, the way the world is right now, the weather, all of that, those conditions they are arising lawfully from past causes. So I can't really do anything about the war right now, in this moment, the war in Ukraine, or the way my mood is, the pain in my knee, who's in the room with me. Because it's naturally, unavoidably, the expression of all those past conditions. But how I'm relating, how I'm understanding, the kind of meaning I'm making up around these conditions that are here, that's laying down another impression. That's setting something in motion. So when we talk about moral sensitivity, we're not looking at how much pain I'm experiencing right now. We're looking at how's the mind relating What is the mind setting motion by how it's relating? What's relevant now isn't what's showing up, 
What's relevant now is how the heart is relating. It's always about this relational world. And the gross level of relating is just how how is the mind relating to sense experience and this interaction and this relationship with traffic and this relationship with the food in front of me and this relationship with the computer and scrolling through the internet. How's the mind relating? Is it desperate? Acting out of some sense of lack? Desperate for something interesting or pleasant to remove temporarily the feeling of lack? Oh, well, what does that acting out of that sense of lack and the motivation, the somewhat desperate motivation, define something interesting so I remove that sense of lack for a few moments, find a good TV show or whatever it is. What does that, what, what does that leave behind in the heart, in the mind stream? What impression? What does that set in motion? Is it helpful or unhelpful, skillful or unskillful? A cause for stress or cause for release? That is a morally sensitive human being someone who's interested in that. And it isn't something that we figure out cognitively. It's something that we figure out by learning how to trust and feel the experience of remorse. I mean, isn't it like if we binge watch something? You know, I I know this feeling very clearly, like you watched couple shows, it's a relatively good show, you're, you're happy that you know, it's relatively wholesome and it's fun to watch, and you watch two episodes, you know, one, it was very satisfying, think, oh, I've got time to watch, and then it's like, there's this calculation in my four more episodes, it's already a little stressful, like liking it now, there's, it's still kind of good, but there's now a dependence on it. And the heart, this is, I'm just talking from my own experience, my heart wants to be done with the dependence. Maybe I'll just watch it all. So I can put down the load of needing to watch it all. So I'll just finish it and be done with it. Anybody, some of you are smiling, so you know this. It's really good to be honest. Like I was saying to Wynn earlier today, you know, that, not that, we could actually do this, but it would be, it would be very interesting to say those of you on Zoom and those in the room, you know, maybe with a piece of paper, everybody has to write down the most egregious, outrageous moral lapse of your life. You know, where you really did something bad or are doing something bad. Maybe it's current. And then, and then like show and tell. And, and like, then notice like, oh, like, oh, I would not want to tell you what I looked at on the internet. You know, it's like, I don't want to talk about that. And, and like, what's that feeling? That moral shame, let's call it, or regret. Like we get sometimes if we do watch six episodes in a row, and then it's like we notice how we've trashed our mind for a while. Right? It's just like not good for anything. 
and we feel that yucky, like, ah, oh, that was not good, what I just did. Or we overeat, or, you know, any number of, drink too much, say something stupid, or something insensitive to somebody. And then there's that. So that's moral sensitivity. It's related to moral sensitivity. But it's like, it's a very powerful medicine. We have to learn how to use that natural, useful feeling of regret. Even just using that word shame can kind of help attune to that experience. Because it's very easy, as I'm sure you sense, to turn it into judgment and self-hatred. But how can we use it like, I'm so happy to be able to be aware that when the mind relates like this, then there's this feeling. Oh, it's like, that means I get to know cause and effect. I'm not driving without being able to see. I get, I get to participate in this world of karma, cause and effect. And then it's like if when we really start to trust it, then it becomes more and more easy to refrain, to restrain ourselves from doing something that we've done 10,000 times before and didn't deliver the goods. And then it's like, I could do this, but I know where this goes, so I'm not going to do it. And it's like, we feel so good about being able to take care of ourselves in that way. I'm sure, you know, and this would be something really great to share next week in the small groups. It's like those places where you have confidence, you're appreciative, like you could call that, as Ajahn Amaro, I think, did in one of his books, like grateful for the breaks, the power to be able to refrain or restrain ourselves from saying something that we sense shouldn't be said or even thinking something we're pretty sure doesn't need to be thought or whatever it might be. Let me just check in with the people on Zoom. Is the sound okay? Yeah? Okay, good. So a couple other things to keep in mind for the small groups next week. You know, just in terms of homework, um, we're going to take the last 20 minutes to review the five precepts. We'll do them. Um, and I've put that into the, into the chat. I'll do that again right now so folks can have that document. And uh, it will be linked to in the weekly in the email that I'll send out to the whole group tomorrow so you all have your copy. But one is uh, encouragement is to just make it a daily practice to reflect in your own way. You'll have the traditional recitation, but it's really okay to make it feel right for yourself, but to just, in one way or another, resolve around this commitment of non-harming, like learning to value 
living a life of not harming yourself or others. And just to evoke more and more curiosity. So it's there when you go shopping. Like, how do I shop for food and value non-harming myself and others? How do I hang out with my friends at the bar and really value not harming myself and others? How do I drive in traffic, valuing not harming myself and others? How do I get involved in this social-political activism without harming myself and others? How do I have sex or have a sexual relationship without harming myself and others? You know, in all the other arenas, how do I have power in, you know, institutional power at work or cultural power because of a color of our skin or the class we inhabit or the gender or whatever, sexual orientation? How do we use power in a way that doesn't harm myself or others or privilege? That's kind of interesting stuff. And remember, it, I'm framing it that way, or the Buddha frames it that way, so it shouldn't be easy. We should get a lot of red flags if during the class, the course this summer, we're using the material to beat ourselves up, to feel bad about ourselves, because we're a bad human being. We do bad stuff. Like I, I mentioned earlier, it should be a cause for curiosity. Well, this is interesting. I really want to hit this person. I'm not going to, but I really want to hit them. I want something bad to happen to them. Or I did say something with the intention to hurt them. I actually not only thought, but I acted on the thought, and I let loose a zinger. Of course, we would disguise it. Carol Wilson, I was just teaching at Spirit Rock with one of our elders in our insight meditation community here in the States. And Carol teaches a lot in Europe as well. But um, but she just gave this really funny rant on, you know, the habit of people on these, you know, nine-day retreats or longer retreats when people get really sensitive and we all start to irritate each other. You know, someone's breathing too loud in the meditation hall or something like that. And so people will then write a note and they don't know your name, so they'll just leave it on your cushion, you know. You're breathing really loud. And they always sign it, metta, <laughs> which, if you don't know, just means loving kindness. But it's not metta. It's like, your breathing is bothering me. I find it really insulting, like you're doing it on purpose or something like that, metta. <laughs> and so we disguise our little jabs and pokes, all kinds of ways. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at my partner because I see that in our relationship. Luckily, you know, we're both practitioners and to some degree, not perfectly, we kind of, there's a little bit of an awareness. We still do it, or I do it, but there's a little awareness that I'm doing it while I'm doing it. You know, we're poking, pushing. I learned it. You know, I blame my parents, or my mom especially, because she had this sort of way of teasing and pointing out things, and 
yeah, it's just it's sort of like uh, partly a game, um, but also, and I think it it may be just endemic to creatures that are social, where they're always sort of uh, uh, clarifying how power works in this interaction by just seeing you know who has power, where the power is, like who's on top, who's not on top. So we kind of just checking where the emotional vulnerabilities are, how this person has needs in this moment, or how I have needs in this moment, how I can disguise my needs, remain oblivious, and pretend I have no needs, like the need to dominate. (laughs) All these ways of um, subtly or not so subtly causing harm for ourselves and others. It should be a cause for real curiosity to start mapping this out and learning how to listen with a lot of appreciation that there is this morally sensitive heart that feels every intention, every, the, the quality of every motivation has a feeling. It lays down it. Um, is a cause for the arising of a feeling, a feeling tone. Oh, it feels like this. And there's just very naturally, you know, just like we feel stupid when we hit ourselves with the hammer, you know, hit our thumb or something, when we act in an unskillful way, but it's seen with some clarity, It's it also, there's that, oh, like, Wow, I can't believe I did this. This really doesn't help. Please don't do that again. Right? The learning is so natural when it's illuminated by present moment awareness. I want to be a better partner when I notice something I said that felt off. Like, I don't know if Wynn noticed it, but then... Later, <laughs> I went over and tried to express some tenderness. Did you notice? <laughs> Do you remember? <laughs> I don't need you to remember when I was giving you that little neck. <laughs> that was, that's because what I said earlier. <laughs> remember that you pointed out to me? You don't remember? <laughs> no, but it's really good to, you know, I don't think there is any interaction where that is free of this kind of stuff. We're constantly throwing somebody out of our heart in little and big ways by just, like, being more interested in our phone than them, right? And we're constantly trying to get something from somebody that they may not want to give. I notice this a lot, just, uh, you know, in terms of taking something that isn't being offered, just about attraction, sexual attraction. And just like, what am I, you know, oh, I, I want to look at this. And what's that like? What's that like? Like, what impression does that lay down in my mind? And who do I become? Like, what gets set in motion? 
you know, and it's it's not something to be afraid of because, you know, I mean, in different ways, we're all sexual beings. And so that's going to be very alive, even when we get old. <laughs> For better or worse, it's there. So this is the thing about this whole area of sila. Are we willing to illuminate it with awareness? Or do we think the strategy for happiness is just to wish uh, wish it away? Like pretend that how I'm aware, how I'm showing up, how I'm relating, how I'm expressing the conditioned habits that I picked up through culture, just assuming that that's just how it is. You know, I'm a white male conditioned by early 1960s television and people are just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we it's okay to try that because we are going to try that, but it would be, we really have an incentive to know, to want to know how that's working for us and for others. How's that working? What is, what, what does the heart receive from that? And nobody, by the way, is exempt. You know, those of you who are younger and picked up a different set of conditioning, as self-righteous as the older generations or younger generations might be, you know, my guess is it's all off. You know, culture is just, it's sort of like the lowest denominator in terms of, you know, the the general cultural forces tend to be revolving around greed, hatred, and delusion. It changes, of course, the particular way those forces are expressed, but it doesn't seem obvious that, you know, older is worse and newer forms are better. It just seems like different expressions of the same old, same old, greed, hatred, and delusion. So, um, yeah, resolving, like I mentioned, so just again reviewing the homework, like practice fearlessly resolving to want to be a happy human being and in doing that to realize I have this potential to become more morally sensitive, to navigate my way, to learn what's helpful and unhelpful, I don't just, it's not enough just to resolve to be happy, but connecting that deep wish to be happy with a sense of responsibility, like of uh, empowerment. I can do it. I can start paying attention. Like how being stingy doesn't help. How being more generous in a way that feels safe and appropriate really helps. Leads to happiness being able to refrain from doing stuff that doesn't seem to help is empowering, is a cause for joy. Feeling a victim to my habit energy is a cause for depression, right? Doing the same thing, getting the same results, even though I said to myself, I'm never going to do that again. And there I do it again. Okay. So is it that I'm just destined to act out this unhelpful habit forever? Or is there actually the possibility 
of being interested in enough, interested in it enough to, to unpack the supporting causes. Like, what is it that the mind isn't seeing and isn't feeling that leads the mind, the heart, to do this action that is so stressful? What would the mind need to feel and see more clearly that would lead to a different response in this situation? What am I not seeing that if I did see and feel that, I wouldn't do that thing? What do I need to bring to mind? Okay, let me try to resolve to bring that to mind the next time I notice I'm inclined to do this thing to spend my time in this way that I have deep confidence isn't a cause for my well-being, isn't the cause for other people's well-being, isn't the cause for anybody's well-being. What do I need to bring to mind? So this is a place that you can explore these eight weeks. Just take some of those places where you already have some clarity this isn't helpful. Instead of it going immediately to some sense of helplessness and judgment and self-hatred, just this more enlivened, empowered, this can be figured out, not by thinking, but this more careful observation of what the mind habitually chooses not to be aware of and what the mind chooses to be aware of. Like you know, whatever your habit energy might be, to overeat, to watch too much media, to drink too much, to gossip too much, to, you know, whatever it might be. What is the mind attending to? Like, how does that justification work? Because we're just making, the mind is capable of making stuff up, you know, these rationalizations. And so we can get very familiar. Oh, this is how the mind paints a picture that makes it seem okay that I'm going to do this thing. And this is what the mind is strategically not remembering, not bringing to mind. And when we do that, even in hindsight, when when that strong remorse is more poignant, where we're really feeling more sincerely like, I really need to find a way to stop doing this, acting out this addiction, let's say. Then get clear about, not that you're going to have perfect clarity, but what do I need to see and what am I seeing instead? Because we always assume that when I'm perceiving the moment, that I'm perceiving accurately, but we're making it up. We're constructing reality. So when it makes sense to watch the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth episode, we're making something up. Whatever it is, like it's just too hard to get up and shut the computer off. I actually have to get up out of my seat, you know. And now, you know how it is with these streaming services, it just goes right to the next episode. How convenient. So what do I need to see? Like this is the one thing about not having 
advertisements where you can actually check in and have a sense like, how am I doing? Oh, I'm not doing good. <laughs> so we want to resolve to be happy. We want to learn more how to access the sensitivity, this moral sensitivity, and, and kind of play with particular places. Like for some of you, it might be in traffic. Like how to be a morally sensitive being. Because it's like there's two allegiances. Either we're going to have more uh, be in allegiance with our animal nature, which we all have, of course, because we're animals. And animal nature, by that I mean, I just want to survive. I just want to hide from danger and threats. I just want to be on the top of the heap. I just want to get what I want, have what I want. So we're either doing that, we're acting out of that point of view, or there's a spiritual point of view we can be living our life through. And it animates our, you know, kind of provides our motivations and, and energy to sort of choose and act and respond. And you could call this, like in terms of our course this summer, the intention, the motivation to harmonize. It's, it's a nice, I like that word, and you can use that all eight weeks long and then forever. You know, like, so let's say traffic is one of those places that's of interest to you. So how can I be a moral being driving my car, my bicycle, my whatever, and intentionally be interested in harmonizing with everything, harmonizing with my own emotional state, states, my own mood, my own body, my bike, my car, the people on the highway with me, everything, the totality of the moment. Like that mutuality, I care, I'm in relationship and therefore sensitive and therefore caring about everything. And caring about my well-being doesn't mean I have to exclude caring about your well-being. Part of the intention to harmonize is somehow taking care of your well-being and taking care of my well-being and everyone's well-being. They're not like different ways of operating in the moment. That it all can be, that we can harmonize all, all of those intentions and how we move through space, move through the moment, move through the day, this business meeting, cooking dinner for the family or your people you live with, or having an interaction with your partner, or whatever it might be. Like a little mindfulness spell can go off. So, oh yeah, I'm taking this course this summer. It's all about sila, moral sensitivity, valuing this harmonization, like caring about everything, as opposed to trying to get, or even like even if we're in a business relationship, okay, we both have our agendas, so let's connect together and see if we can work together so you help me get what I want and I hope you get what you want. But that's not really there yet at that more spiritual motivation to harmonize. It's 
it's maybe a step in the direction, like realizing, hey, we're in this together, so let's work together. Because that intention to harmonize is really coming from this intention of generosity. In this way, in the Buddhist tradition, sila is considered like a beautiful expression of generosity. We're giving ourselves and the whole world the gift of non-fear and the gift of trust. You don't have to be afraid of me because I deeply value non-harming. And that's the vibe. You know, we feel that sometimes when we're meeting somebody or just spending some time around somebody that we don't know well. But after a few moments of interacting, we get a sense like, I totally trust this person. And I think what we mean by that is we sense this person has developed some real momentum around their their practice of sila. And it's not that they're a Buddhist, of course, because this isn't specific to any kind of training. It's just specific to somebody realizing, like in English, we'd call it conscience. They have a They've developed their conscience. Oh yeah, I don't want to feel bad after I'm done with this interaction because it feels bad when I feel bad. <laughs> it hurts. So, and that, it's like the heart, that moral sensitivity is what leads us onward to becoming more happy. And it isn't that doesn't happen because we try to be good. It happens because we're willing to feel, recognize and feel moral sensitivity. That's what changes us. And it's, you know, it's not fortunate, but, you know, if we're able to be oblivious, you know, we call these people like, they had a, I think it was in the DSM manual, you know, this kind of manual that psychologists and psychologists use to diagnose mental health issues, you know, conduct disorder, where somebody has been able to very effectively bury their moral sensitivity. It's not that someone does that personally, but through causes and conditions, the conditioning processes in that person's life, not, it's not very easy for them to feel and listen to their moral sensitivity. And those people can do terribly bad stuff and not really correct or notice even that it's bad because they're disconnected. And this is the thing about different strategies of disconnection. You know, it makes a lot of sense, at least initially when we're in a lot of pain, to close down because we're in a lot of pain and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to be with it skillfully. But the thing about the way our heart and mind works, we can't just say, I'm closing this part off. When we turn away from what we're feeling, from what's here, we basically turn away from sensitivity. We unconsciously mostly choose numbness and disconnection. So part of what allows us to become morally sensitive beings 
is we have to be willing to feel what we feel, be willing to be sensitive. And it, it's like we get ourselves, you know, you hear this sometimes, and it's not just in terms of Buddhist practice, but just generally spiritual practice, like it becomes a narrow path, being a spiritual being, because we become more and more sensitive, and as we become more sensitive, it's like a lot of our habit energies don't work for us anymore because we can't tolerate being inappropriate, being a jerk, being greedy, acting out in this way and that way. And we don't really have new habits. All we feel sometimes is that all my habits don't feel appropriate anymore. And I don't even know how to be. And we can feel like a little trapped. Something is dying, all the ways I used to relate to my life, and something else hasn't come fully into being yet, like new ways, new motivations, new animating forces, like learning how to live my life through kindness, not an imitation, but just being friendly and open and loving and tender and responsive. Not even as a plan, but just because that's what's left when what wasn't working is abandoned. And another practice that I mentioned, I just want to say again, because I think it will be useful, is to, uh, in a way that feels safe, alone, you know, while you're walking or sitting comfortably, bring to mind some of those moral lapses where you did something you're really not happy about, really ashamed about. Bring it to mind and then see if you can find your way to appreciating that the memory hurts. Like your heart has built this big, powerful monument like Mount Rushmore, you know, carved into the mountain of your heart. Honey, don't do this. Or when you do this, it feels like this. And it's like the monument is there, the remorse, the yucky feeling when you remember those things you did. Like I think back when I was a junior and senior in high school and just, you know, getting drunk and interacting with, uh, you know, the people I was attracted to. But, you know, I just, just like, I'm so glad I'm not a teenager. <laughs> There's just those bumbling attempts to be with another human being, intimate with another human being, and just how easy it is to yeah, be oblivious to the other person's, uh, the other person being a person, a sensitive human being. You know, when I just, and I, you know, I was like probably in the great scheme of things, you know, you know, I, just, I didn't do anything really stupid. But still, those memories, it's like, oh my God, I was such an idiot. <laughs> and so lucky 
to not have caused more harm. It would have been really easy. And uh, so to like bring something like that to mind and to sort of see, to use those sort of bigger experiences for our life to get a clearer sense of how moral sensitivity operates. Oh, yeah. I don't need to be afraid of that yucky feeling. It's not going to kill me. It's just a beautiful, that's the Pali phrase that some of you know, hiri otapa. The Buddha calls them the guardians of the world, right? These monuments carved into our hearts, like, oh, yeah. And, it, and it's also like, in a more subtle way, when we do something really wise, like we refrain from something where we could have done something stupid. I once drank too much. I wasn't really drunk, but I was affected by the alcohol that I drank. And I was driving by myself after a long, many hours of driving, hiking out of Canyonlands National Park, and then driving for hours, going back to where I was working in Taos, New Mexico at the time. And I picked up and had a couple beers. And I think I'd smoked some pot earlier in the day. And uh, I drove off a road, one of the most difficult highways in the country, probably, in uh, southwestern Colorado. I could have so easily killed myself. (laughs) Luckily, the snow was deep and the car was driving just went into the you know it was, it was a deep ravine but the snow caught me and you know it was just like I think I probably fell asleep is what I'm guessing but you know you don't know but just these kind of stupid things like to but like that one you know it was like uh, I felt so fortunate to have learned that lesson you know and I haven't <laughs> I don't do drugs or alcohol that was way back in 82 or 83. And, uh, and just to, yeah, just to kind of appreciate the power of these sort of mistakes. Like, we can't avoid making mistakes, but we can turn them into solid gold by regurgitating them, noticing the feeling there, distilling the lesson, making that monument so we don't have to do it again. It's like there's so many great poems about, uh, that's like one line I'm remembering, Persia Gertner, I think is the poet, the hieroglyphics, I don't know if they're etched into the heart, the line is something like that, you know, just the, the sort of messiness and painfulness of life how can we distill the learning so we really take advantage of all the little and big ways we've caused harm? And the last thing, you know, just in terms of the study, is just to have a sense of the joy, the lightness, the, this uh, non-fear and the trustworthiness of this earthy wisdom. Sila is really is the most earthy form of wisdom. And to kind of like, like, yeah, I know how to handle myself because my heart is sensitive. It's got radar. 
So when I'm about to do something stupid that will cause me and others harm, it's going to, you know, it's going to start saying something, throwing some red flags out, or, you know, it's going to feel something. So I'm going to stay. And that's like that earthy being grounded, like we talk a lot about embodiment, but really what we're embodying is the sensitive moral heart. And you can even use the general location as a kind of anchor, you know. So in those places where you're going to be interested in uh, staying attuned to moral sensitivity, like you're going into a meeting that pushes your buttons or you're going to drive in traffic, that you're just like, okay, I'm going to practice harmonizing with whatever's moving as if I can be a moral being interested in harmonizing instead of interesting in winning or even interested in surviving. That might seem like more wholesome, but maybe we can aspire to something different, even more beautiful, like harmonizing in a way that's healing all around. My presence, my way of relating, my being here in relationship with the moment is a cause for healing and releasing all around. Whether people notice it or not, we don't need praise. I'm so glad you were there, Mark. You were such a healing presence, right? We don't, because the, the effect, the direct effect itself is the reward. It's just the, you know, I don't know, clean, cleanliness may not resonate with you. There's probably better words, but there's this absence of remorse. The Buddha calls it the bliss of blamelessness. So look for that lightness. It's a real happiness. It's a real joy. Where in your life, when you're doing something, finishing something, can you detect that bliss of blamelessness, that lightness, that powerful trust in your in the goodness and the earthy wisdom of your own heart. Oh, I can trust that my heart isn't going to do something stupid in this kind of situation. This other situation, I'm not yet able to trust my heart because it's still, I know the conditioning, the forces that are at play. Those habits are not personal, but they're real, you know, to act out in this way or that way. So it can get clunky you know, like around sexual attraction, which we'll talk about later in the course. But there are some places where, no, I have to, it's going to be a little awkward because I, I have a lot of respect for the force of sexual attraction. So I, I'm going to treat it with respect. I wish I could be completely like, no, that I'm not going to do something stupid. But I want to make sure I don't do anything stupid. So I'm going to be careful, even if I have to kind of get tight, like, I oh, know I'm not going to look over there. It seems a little like, well, that's a little tight. You know, it's just something that the heart finds beautiful. Why are you afraid, Mark? You know, but just like, well, you know, I, I understand. I've observed the forces in the mind, not personal, but real. So I'm going to be careful about that. So I look forward to our weeks together. We didn't have time to do the precepts, but 
It's maybe even better not to do the formal recitation so that those of you who are not used to the formal recitation won't get put off by the kind of ceremonial or the formal quality of that recitation. Yeah, just use the words and try to see how you might use that commitment to non-harming, to not taking what hasn't been given, to refraining from any sexual activity that causes myself or others harm, speaking in ways that cause myself or others harm, consuming, especially consuming intoxicants, which I would include media in that category, drugs, alcohol, media, in ways that cause harm for myself and others. Those are just illuminating, those five precepts are just illuminating the places where we can begin to cultivate this moral sensitivity, see where it leads. So wishing us all a good week of practice. Remember, you can always send me questions. I'll weave them into the talks and discussions in the weeks ahead. So um, you'll all have my email address because you're going to receive and have already and will receive emails from me through our Buddhist studies uh, email list. So thanks everyone for being here and uh, wishing you a good week of practice. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.